Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. Mike Degagne, the president and CEO of Inspire. Inspire, spelled I-N-D-S-P-I-R-E, is arguably Canada's most celebrated and successful charity, uh, leading the advancement of, of education for Indigenous communities. And Mike uh, is one of our nation's most respected thought leaders and figures on Indigenous education. Uh, before his role at Inspire, he was the president and vice chancellor of Nipissing University, uh, as well as the president of Yukon University. For that, Dr. Degagne, who got his PhD from Michigan State University, go Spartans, was a founding uh, executive director of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, a national indigenous organization dedicated to addressing the legacy of Canada's Indian residential school system. Uh, he's a recipient of the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario, as well as the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. Uh, it goes obviously without saying that he is a well-decorated academic and leader in in the community and I learned a ton from this conversation with Mike. Uh, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Mike Degagne. I want to start by um, acknowledging the land we are meeting on, although virtually. We're meeting on the land, um, the traditional territory of, of many nations, including Mississaugas of the Credit, uh, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, um, the Haudenosaunee, uh, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, uh, Inuit, and Metis people. It's a bit unusual for me as, a, as an indigenous person, I guess, to, to, to say a lot of those names um, and pronounce them, so I hope I did them justice. But I also, you know, Mike, don't want that to be lip service and a surface level type of uh, recognition. Um, but I want to recognize, you know, my responsibilities uh, as a non-Indigenous person in supporting Indigenous activism uh, and self-determination, um, you know, dismantling kind of the lasting effects and, and structures of colonialism. Um, and part part of that for me was educating myself in preparation for for this conversation with you, um, and the importance of having you know a leader like yourself who's actively pushing forward education and reform for Indigenous peoples um, on our podcast to share your message with our audience. So so with that, I welcome you and and hope that. Uh, that was uh, an adequate way of recognizing, I suppose, the, the the land that we're that we're that we're meeting on. Yeah, no, I think it was great, uh, and, and thank you. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. And um, as as I think a lot of people have discussed these land acknowledgments before, and and one of the things people say is, well, why do we do them if they don't seem to solve all the problems? And and I I think they bring the problems into sharper focus uh, by having land acknowledgments at. Uh, you know, in, in public events or in, in uh, you know, in, in the public sector, certainly universities and colleges and, you know, hospitals and government uses land acknowledgement all the time. At least it helps us think about what some of the issues are and about Indigenous issues and Indigenous people generally. I think it's very helpful I, and uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and that's, it's nice to hear your insight on it. I think you're right. I think Speaking things into existence sometimes are important, um, and and even just learning the language shouldn't be an alibi to to you know for for people to feel like they're doing their part. Uh, I don't think it's a, it's an excuse to stop there, but hopefully that's that's kind of the the start um, for for everyone's you know self work. I call it uh, in 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 recognition and in in moving Indigenous agendas forward. Yeah. No, I, I think if you 
even if you look at sort of the, the you know the modern history of indigenous people you go back to 1960 when we were first uh, got to vote in Canada um, you know that's within the lifetime of many of the people that you're going to meet today and and it's so it's 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 recent history but um, I think by taking a look at what was existent then and how how very rarely we acknowledged indigenous people or indigenous issues or the indigenous role in Canadian society, how it was, it was rare. And so a lot of people in their lifetime have seen tremendous change. And, uh, and I think um, land acknowledgement is one of the positive ones. I'd like to start by, by asking you what you studied uh, in school uh, the first time. I know you spent a lot of time in school, but let's, let's start with your undergrad. I, uh, I studied uh, at uh, University of Toronto Scarborough College is what it was called then. Of course, it's UT University uh, Toronto Scarborough, UT Scarborough now. Um, and uh, I went in as a science student, a general science student. And one of the things uh, I think um, uh, I made the mis- a mistake of doing is to say, well, look, um, it's, it was like panning for gold. Uh, I took a lot of mud at the first at, at the beginning. And then I just kept taking the things that I seemed to, to uh, do well at, not necessarily the things that I was uh, good at or interested in. And so I would, uh, I stayed in the sciences, but I can tell you, I would walk back to residence uh, during the day and, and I'd see my friends sitting out on a chair reading books. And I thought I should have been a literature student. I don't know why, but you know, but it, I'm too far gone now. So it was, uh, I, I finished my degree in the sciences and biology. I liked it, but I, it wasn't a passion. You know, in, in keeping with a lack of planning, I graduated uh, and I still remember the day walking out of the final uh, exam that I took for my undergraduate thinking, wow, what do I do next? Now life, here's life now, right? It's, it's happening in real time. And, uh, and so uh, as luck would have it, I got a call from a friend who was in California and he he said, uh, why don't you come down here and start a master's degree? You know, they're, they're looking for uh, a master's, they've got a new program in uh, a master's of uh, health, health sciences and health education. And so I went to the States and I started a master's of health education program, which I liked a lot better. I think it was much more community focused uh, and it, uh, you were clearer on how you were going to help people. And that whole time, w- w- did you have a, a- at least any sense of what you wanted to do with it? Was there, was there a goal in mind or was it you enjoyed, you enjoyed your studies and you just kind of continued on that path or did you know you were going to go back and kind of start working at some point, at least uh, with the indigenous communities? Well, I, I, I didn't know then. Um, I, I really didn't have an idea. I, um, um, I followed the, the health admin program and then came back to Toronto and I was uh, I worked for a small um, church run organization and uh, they they survived on um, uh, literally on donations that they would receive throughout the week. It was it was really hand to mouth and they were called alcohol and drug concerns and they were an addictions organization. And they had summer programs that they offered on reserves to uh, to certain reserves who were partners with them. And they would they would put young people, young university grads uh, in the community to run programs in the summer to essentially help kids make other choices or have other choices besides alcohol and drugs. And so I became a summer worker uh, working in a couple of different communities uh, with kids 
and um, and then eventually moved into Toronto where their headquarters were and uh, and worked in the addictions field for quite a while. What were your, some, some of your, your, your biggest learnings or takeaways from working in, in the addictions field? That's got to be a pretty eye-opening world to be not just working in, but, but, but on the ground and right. You were boots on the ground. Yeah. I, I think the big, the biggest thing was that um, uh, when we think about addiction today uh, or, or have for a long time, we think about it in terms of an individual, you know, maybe, you know, most of us have a relative who struggles with addiction uh, and uh, you think about that person and uh, and th- their struggles and uh, the frustrations of families and friends and communities to help the person who, and you think, geez, you know, maybe they just don't want to be helped. They just don't seem to make those choices to get better, right? They look past this sort of disease model of, of addictions. But uh, in the Indigenous community, it's, a, it, it, it's more of a community thing. You don't focus on the individual person who is uh, addicted. You think about the destruction of the community, right? The destruction of family and, um, and where that leaves children. And, um, and so a lot of the work that we did in the community uh, when I was working with alcohol and drug concerns back in the 70s was, um, um, was about restoring community by making sure that the children weren't, uh, were, weren't casualties of, of family addiction. And uh, eventually I, I, w- I went to a, um, a provincial organization, uh, the Addiction Research Foundation, and, uh, and started to con- you know, continue to uh, uh, work in that field, eventually moving to a, a federal, uh, federal organization called the Canadian Center on Substance Abuse. So uh, the addictions was a big focus for me, but, all, but I think at the heart of it was the destruction of community through addiction. How does that impact when you then get to the federal level where you're, I'm sure in charge of budgets and you have dollars and how do you, how do you then still stay in touch with that? Yeah, that, that, that's the difficulty, right? That's the difficulty is that in many of these fields, uh, especially in support of children, whether it's, you know, mental health or addictions or, or whatever it is, you're, you, you are gravitate to the field because you, you like the contact with people and you like the, the contact with programs. Um, and, um, and so as you move to more and more complex programs in the federal government, like I did, uh, you get farther and farther away from those, from actually the daily work of working with other people. But, um, at the same time, uh, it's, I think it's pretty, you've, you've got to keep your education up. You've got to, and, and you use your education to, to, to write about and think about and, uh, you know, journal about the lives of people, you know, keep, keep consulting them so that you don't get too far away from what's really happening. Following that you and you ended up working in, in the world of academia uh, at at a number of universities. What, what drove you to then, to then go to, for example, the university of Nipsing? Well, it it was funny. I I have a a a good friend who would who would um, uh, disown me if I ever said that she was an elder, or I would say she's a, a an an advisor. And and she um, uh, before I went into the federal government for about a decade, um, she she came to me at a conference and she said, you know, it's it's time now to start working for our community for the First Nations, Métis, Inuit community. And so she says, I think you should work for 
you know, the, the, the federal government, they have addictions programs there and, and they're very specific to indigenous people. And uh, I, I've, I've mentioned your name to someone and they're going to contact you. It's okay. So as it turned out, um, that led to a, a long a time spent in the federal government. And then when it, the time came to work um, in the indigenous community, um, when I when I moved to the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, which was a very specific program around residential schools, she came to me and uh, you know uh, picked up the phone and said, "Hey, listen." I've heard about this new organization called the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. It's time for you to leave the government. It's time for you to go and work for, for, for our people in a different way. And, and I did. And uh, she put my name in and uh, her name carries a lot of weight. And, um, and uh, I started working with the Healing Foundation. And so the same thing happened when, when I moved to universities. The Healing Foundation had uh, wound down after 15 years. And then I went to Nipissing. Um, mostly she said, um, you know, at the same time, uh, she didn't put my name in, but she certainly, uh, gave me some wise counsel about it's time to look at something different. It's time to looking at, um, the, the real promise of hope for a community, which is education. And you can, you can do good work there. And that's, that's why I, that's why I moved along as I did. Right. And I apologize. I, I, I missed that step in the, in the Aboriginal, um, uh, yeah, healing. Uh, yeah. He, yes, um, and I, I missed that piece. But but can you can you walk me through that? Like what 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 what, is, what was the the goal of of that organization? Well, the Healing Foundation was an interesting um, was a, almost like a, an interesting experiment. I mean, uh, you'd hate to think of that that in, in the context of residential schools. But we had um, Indian residential schools were uh, were a part of Canadian history for about a hundred years. And they were, had wound down um, as late as the 1990s. Um, and so many of the people who had attended residential, Indian residential schools in the 90s, there were probably well over 100,000 people who were still alive who had attended residential school. And, um, and so they began to have d dialogue with churches who ran the schools and with government. And they asked, you know, um, you know, let's have an acknowledgement that this whole era wasn't right, that it was misguided, the, the objectives were wrong, and that people were harmed, uh, grievously, harmed grievously harmed in the process of, you know, going through these schools. Uh, many died. And so, um, you, you know, where are we going to get acknowledgement, restitution, commemoration, um, an understanding of what happened? So the government at the time in 1998, um, through a series of dialogues, created the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. And so it really, it was put there with governments, with, with a, an amount of government funding, but it got an opportunity sort of to develop its own ideas about where it wanted to go. So it did some research, quite a bit of research on residential schools and indigenous people. Uh, it pro provided um, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to about 1500 community projects across the country that, I mean, you know, some, some projects where they would take elders out on the land with young people and they would talk about the residential schools and, and how that affected, you know, mental health today and these kinds of things. So a lot of it had to do with education and community education. And, um, and in the end, we became in a sense, publishers, we, we captured stories of healing and wellness and reconciliation and we published them. So it was, so it, it was, 
that rare job where you kind of get to define the whole thing. And, and it, uh, it went on for about 15 years. That's fantastic. And, yeah. and then, and then the, the, the roles in the universities, I guess were the culmination of a lot of these, these different uh, roles and, and jobs you had in the past um, where, where now you got to lead an academic institution like Nipsing or, or, or the Yukon yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I had, when I, when I went back to school and I, I, you know, I did my school in sort of a lifelong education type of format where I was continuously rolled in one course or another for decades. And eventually, you know, they give you a degree and they say, okay, move on. You can go to the next one. And so I, I finished my doctorate um, and it was in indigenous education. And it mostly looked at what were the things that were helpful to indigenous students within mainstream universities. So um, uh, what kind of programs can we put in place to support people? And uh, one of the programs, uh, one of the things that really helped was this idea of an indigenous center, right? And, and most universities now have some sort of an indigenous center or uh, support service, you know, uh, place where people go. And um, uh, so, I, w- I was interested in that and in, 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 in interested in how to make these centers really effective for Indigenous students, you know, re- recruitment, retention, uh, uh, tutoring, all those sorts of things, support. So when I got to Nipissing University, uh, Nipissing turns out, you know, is has a number of different First Nations communities surrounding it. And it was a great place to 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 help develop and work on those programs right, to, uh, to help Indigenous students. There's about, oh, there was well over 10% of the, on, the, the, the on-campus population at Nipissing is Indigenous. So it was, uh, it made a big impact. Wow. And, and I guess when you, when you put all of that together, you get to the apex, which is, which is Inspire. <laughs> yes. Which is where, where you are now the, the, the president and, 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 Vice, I guess, I guess, president and CEO of, of, yeah. of Inspire and uh, which is a fantastic organization that I would love to you. I'd love to have you, you share about with our audience. Well, yeah. So all of those uh, wonderful uh, experiences over the course of three decades of work uh, culminated in, you know, and going through the doors of, of, uh, of Inspire. And so Inspire started out as an organization that, um, wanted to celebrate excellence. And um, back in the day, uh, it, it's been around in a variety of forms for a long time. It started out, uh, I guess its genesis really was the um, National Native Role Model Program. The idea of choosing role models, people who in the First Nations, Métis or Inuit community, um, we could, young, in, young Indigenous people could aspire to be, right? And so I, if I look back on the very first role models we had, we had Ted Nolan as a hockey player and we had John Kimbell, a concert conductor. Evan Adams at the time was a traditional dancer who later went on to become a medical doctor uh, and so on. Those are just the ones that, uh, that come to mind. And so over time, we saw the importance of, of emphasizing excellence, people who had achieved great things in the community and um, uh, then it, it blossomed into an, an organization that uh, sub- celebrated art and, 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 and art cult- arts and culture, and then eventually into Inspire, which celebrates um, 
education and support for indigenous students. And how, how do you offer that? Like, what's the, is it, is it, an, is it all virtual? Is it, is there a center where people go? Um, how is it, how is it accessed? It's accessed through an application process. So on the, on the scholarship and bursary support for students side, um, indigenous students can apply and um, um, let us know, uh, you know, what their needs are. Um, and this goes beyond simply tuition, right? All the needs that we all know what the, that students have. And um, so that, that application process occurs and, uh, and then we match uh, our, our, the students and their, their, uh, their, their disciplines, you know, the faculties they're studying in, what years they're in, whether they're undergrads or graduates, all that stuff. We match that up with, with bursaries and scholarships that are generously provided by thousands of individual donors who give to Inspire every year and uh, and, and keep us going. Some very very significant uh, amounts of money from some very generous people and others who others who have have chosen to give much smaller amounts, but they still want them to you know and those those add up to uh, to create this wonderful scholarship and bursary fund. Wow. And this is this is so. If I'm a student, an Indigenous student going to school, uh, whether it's McGill or UBC, yeah, I can I can apply here and not only get access to, to funding, uh, but you'll also put me in touch with with a mentor, for example, or or that's right, or or Algonquin College or or Camosun in BC, you know, colleges. So yeah, so you have that opportunity to have uh, first of all. Um, uh, support, financial support. You also have opportunities to to be supported in your journey. So even before your journey occurs, we talk about uh, through through post secondary education. We talk about uh, mentoring you through transitions, right from from high school into university, in your university career, and then finally there are other programs that allow you to um, uh, to focus on your 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 work life after after graduation. So there is those mentors there that help you in that in that journey. That's a really good point. I'd be I'd be curious to know like, of the proportion of people who of of indigenous people who end up at a college or a university, um, you know, what percentage of them end up in 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 jobs and and kind of successful lives thereafter? But that's only a small piece of the pie. There's a whole set of 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 people who who aren't even getting to that point. And so so is is it part of Inspire's goal to, to work, call it downstream all the way to, to, you know, youth in, in communities. So you can kind of tie in back to, back to where you started, I guess, in your, in your career. Yeah. There is an understanding that you've got to reach, you know, uh, back quite a, quite a ways. And, and a lot of, of, of the universities that have really progressive programs uh, Inspire aside for a moment, but universities that have very progressive programs know that that reach has to happen uh, you know, much earlier. So when I ask you about your, about your post-secondary life, you know, or, uh, you know, the choices you made on where to go, a lot of those are influenced by the fact that you may have had uh, parents, or at least one parent who attended university or highly values it, right? Highly, highly values it. You could be the first one in your, in, of your generation to attend or in your family to attend universities. Uh, and there's still a lot of people out there, but at the same time, uh, most university students have a parent who went or a parent who really highly values it. Secondly, you have access to some sort of money, 
uh, some sort of funding, whether or not that's loans or grants or, or, or the bank of mom and dad, whatever it is. But the third thing is, is that you have an expectation based on your family and your history and, um, and, and the educational journey you've been on, you have an expectation that you will attend university or college. You're, you're, you're programmed that way, you know, and many indigenous students are not programmed that way. So the universities that have really effective programs, they know that they've got to start talking to kids about college and university in grades six, seven, and eight. They've got to, you know, maybe visit the local uh, First Nation, the local Métis, uh, a local Métis meeting or uh, an Inuit uh, community and say, um, you know, there is this organization, there is this institution up the hill and, uh, you know, you should visit it. It's not, a, it's, it's, a, it's a place where, you know, you can uh, make your hopes reality. And we have to start with that dialogue when kids are six, seven, and eight. Um, and then you move into experiences in high school where you say, look, why don't you come up and take a summer summer program we've got up at the university? And I know when my kids were were little, they they would do mostly sports programs, but they went to the university. The university was not a scary place. Um, they uh, they hung out there. They they did recreational sports there. Uh, they used the facilities. This is a place. This is part of our community. This is part of that continuum of just going right. And those are the things that we have to incorporate and, and ingrain into the Indigenous community. And then finally, at those critical moments when you're making a decision, grade 12, um, um, and uh, we have to be, a good university has to be present there too, to manage that transition to say, um, you may not have what everyone else has as an Indigenous person. You may not have access to funds or a good understanding of what's happening at a, at a university and college, we are here to help you make the transition and, and start, start you off on your journey. So yeah, you've got to reach way back and bring people forward and inspire helps to do that too. That's, that's part of our mentoring programs and uh, parting, uh, a part, uh, partly to show people that um, people have accomplished great things through education. Right. And it's, it's part of going, it's part of that, that concept of what you, you mentioned in the beginning, which is, which is offering choice, right. And, and demonstrating opportunity. And that, that I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but somewhat tying it back to, to kind of capitalize for kids would be all of that feeds into a proper and, and healthy mental health, right. Yeah. Which is, which is hopefulness ultimately is a big piece of, of mental health. And um, I, I, I'd be curious to hear how, if you've noticed a change, um, if there's been improvements in this piece, you know, of, of mental health from the work you've been doing at Inspire and, and how you think about that. Yeah, um, I think it's different. If I, if I compare the approach that, that schools have to um, mental health now versus when I was in university. So you have to go back, you know, you go back 40 years I'm entering the University of Toronto. Uh, it was as good a place as any to go. I mean, it was, you know, one of still then one of the best schools, uh, if not the best in Canada. And so you're you're entering there, and mental health. I don't ever recall it being talked about, you know. Um, and when people had troubles, I think they dropped out. And then when you fast forward 40 years to the environment now, and I'm a little spoiled in that Nipissing University was, is, is often ranked among the, amongst the top three universities in the country for mental health services. 
but so they, they put a lot of time and effort and energy into it, but it's not unusual for uh, students to talk about mental health issues, about the challenges they face, about to, to access help. Accessing help is huge. Those helping, helping services have been there a long time, but people, they don't, they just don't feel comfortable yet accessing them. Uh, and, um, and so as a, I remember as a president, you know, and working with student services, we deal with mental health issues all the time, stress, anxiety, depression, uh, leading to, leading to other, other problems real. And, and of course, uh, some people who come with actual mental illnesses to, to university and how we can accommodate and help in that way. So yeah, universities are a very different beast now. And um, I think Inspire helps greatly in that regard, in that you, first of all, you're removing one of the largest stressors that's involved in university, which is how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to operate my life while I'm, you know, living out my dreams of, of, a, of a university or college, college diploma? Um, and so that we take that off the table for people, or we help to take, we help to alleviate that kind of stress. At the same time, mentorship is incredibly critically important to, to, uh, to be a sounding board for, for young people. And I think to reassure people that when they feel like they're the only ones that are really struggling, um, just to tell them that everybody's in the same boat. Right. And that, and that it's okay. And that someone, that someone else who's successful has, has felt like that or has been there before. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. is such an important piece. I, I was, I was, I, I, I was teaching in a, uh, with a friend in a, a professional school, uh, one of the universities in Canada. And, um, and um, we were having a, a it was it, the, the, uh, the pedagogy was that we would present an idea and then we'd go around in a circle to talk about those ideas and then present and go around. Right. And, and so we presented an idea and um, uh, we went around the circle and people said smart things about, about what they'd heard. And, and then one person just was kind of stuck. And then they said, God, you know, I, I have to say that I'm just so impressed with you guys. And just to be able to sit in this circle and listen to your ideas. I just, I just don't think I can keep up with you. You know, I got to tell you, I did not, this is my second year and I didn't do that well in first year. And, you know, I, I just, I, I'm barely keeping up. And then the next person said, I didn't do very well in first year either. I'm still here. And it turned out then all of a sudden everybody else comes out and says, I'm struggling too. I can barely keep up with what I have to read when I have to write. And so it was, um, it was one of those unplanned sharing things, but I thought, yeah, that person sat there for a year and a half and thought they were the only ones experiencing what they were experiencing. And they never thought to ask anyone else. So that's, right. that's the biggest change I think in mental health is that you see more people asking for help and, and confiding in each other. And, and who, like, it's so impressive that uh, the career and the path that you've had given, given what you didn't have access to um, coming from, from your position. So, so like, who, who are your mentors? Who, like what was your, what kind of inspired did you have to like patch together from, from pulling at resources? Like who, who, like who and what were those things for you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, um, um, I guess the, an example of, of that sort of, of, uh, family and parental support. Right. So, 
my mother uh, was a nurse and which was a really um, uh, has long been a, 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 a you know, a job, a work, work of choice for, for indigenous people. My dad was a teacher. So, uh, you know, growing up in the sixties, uh, it was unusual to have two parents working for starters and both of them in, you know, public services and both of them having to, um, uh, be, to be involved in a, in professions that involved education, that they had to go somewhere. Uh, I remember my father having to leave the community for, you know, the little town we lived in for, Every summer he'd leave and have just to get that degree, right? He started his. And what town was that? Like in the sixties. What town was it? Fort Francis, Ontario. Got yeah. Okay. So, so um, you can go anywhere in Canada now, and there's a college or university program. But at that time, uh, it was unusual unless you lived, you know, in a town with a university or college. Uh, it was unusual to have access to those studies. And so the sixties, then they started to do distance education. And what it was, was they would, they would send a teacher from Thunder Bay all the way up to Fort Francis. And she he or she would teach in the, uh, the basement of the church on a Saturday morning. And so that's how you took, took a, an adult class, an adult learning class, right? I mean, compare it now to, you know, uh, uh, online education where everything's instant. You get uh, all kinds of additional resources and that sort of thing. But my dad, when he uh, when he decided he wasn't going to sell tractors for the rest of his life, which uh, which is was a good profession, uh, but uh, decided to be a teacher. Uh, he started his his university education in the basement of a church, taking a classics course. And uh, that's that's how it all began. My mother had to go away, too, for education. So I was lucky enough to have two parents who were tremendous mentors in that way, both of whom were educated and who valued education very highly. So I have three siblings, all of all three sisters, all of whom are university educated and, and professionals. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. That's impressive. That's, that's, that's a really a neat story, especially, but I, I think it's, it, it's still phenomenal. And in, 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 spite, in spite of the support to come from, you know, Fort Francis and come to university of Toronto and then California, yeah. like that's, <laughs> that's, that's an impressive uh, set of, accomplishments um i i i i read the the um the transcript from a speech that you gave in in 2012 uh in calgary and um it, which was a great speech by the way but uh it, it, one of the one of the questions and, and the reason i want to bring this up is because it's it, it blew my mind that this is basically 10 years ago okay and one of the questions yeah, was uh, uh, that someone had asked you uh, was around you know racism and and it was at the time when Pierre Poilievre, an MP for for your community at the time, um, had made a comment on CBC around you know uh, Indigenous people just need to to work harder, uh, and and um, so then you, you were on the CBC page and you saw the comments and you read to the audience and I'm going to paraphrase or, or I guess read some of the comments that you 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 read which were uh yeah you know what's wrong with these people uh why are they complaining i thought they got everything for free they certainly go to university for free uh they don't pay taxes i mean what more do you want uh when you're going to stop when are you going to start top stop talking about you know what you can take and, and start giving back to the broader community uh why do you keep living in the past and then and then you looked at the audience and you said 
they people don't see that as racist. They see that as good old fashioned common sense. And so I don't think they ever classify themselves as racist. And and I thought that that was an interesting takeaway um, where that doesn't feel like it was 10 years ago. That feels like that could have been written last week. And then you continued and you offered another comment that was written, which was, um, I came here as an immigrant and I've never taken a nickel of government money, but I have paid taxes. To which your comment, Mike, was, you have never taken a nickel of government money. You don't have healthcare. How do you drive to work in the morning? You know, so many people have a very low appreciation for what it is they receive from some form of government service and a very high appreciation for their own hard work and effort. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I read this and I hope I, I read this and, and I couldn't believe that this was 10 years ago because once again, it felt like this all could have been written last week in, in light of, or, or two weeks ago or two months ago in light of, you know, everything that's been going on with the BLM movement. You would think that we've been moved, moving a lot further ahead, but I don't know. And, and, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts there on, on that. Yeah, I, I remember that that well. Um, and, and, and so this was the, um, the eve of the apology, um, I think. Uh, I, I was remarking on sort of the apology from uh, Prime Minister Harper to uh, Indigenous people on behalf of Canadians. And uh, and for residential schools, and that just the morning before that uh, apology, that's when uh, Pierre Poilievre, uh, who at the time was my member of parliament as well, uh, he went out and and he gave um, the uh, a, a bootstraps interview. You know, all these people need to do is pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We're not here, and we, you know, Canadians don't appreciate anything but hard work and self reliance which is nonsense, right? I mean, we live in a, in a state where we contribute significantly to the tax base. And from, from that, we get a whole variety of services. So yeah, the, the ridiculous notion that I've never taken a, a, a nickel of government money. Well, then let's set aside the Department of Defense. Um, everything you get from the municipality, like your arenas and, uh, and road clearance, everything you get from the province, like 50% of which is healthcare, and uh, everything you get from the feds, which is, uh, you know, programs, services, defense, uh, you know, national security, uh, all sorts of things. And, and, and to think about um, how people have sort of evolved into that mindset of saying, well, I got here because of my own smarts, hard work and effort. That guy wants to get to the front of the line just based on um, who he happens to be or, um, you know, um, uh, the, the color of his skin. And so there's something there's something about that that requires um, a re-education and a you know a decolonization of the Canadian mind a bit. You know we've got to start to talk to people to say, wait a minute now. Most Indigenous people live off reserve, which means that most Indigenous people work off reserve, and meaning they pay taxes. They're already paying into the tax base. Um, the, 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 it's not a privilege. It's a, it's a treaty right. Uh, you know, the way the taxation system is, is set up now. Um, indigenous people are, especially young people are in our universities in the tens of thousands and are, are graduating, becoming professionals and making a a very significant contributions to Canadian society. Um, we are pulling our weight 
And um, all we're asking for is the deal that we, we, we struck to give the resources of this land to someone else uh, back uh, 200 years ago, you know? So that's, the, the, that's sort of how, uh, how we have to frame it. Um, indigenous people just want to be standing in the, at the same level as everyone else and have the same opportunities. You know, I, I frequently um, quote uh, a speech that was given at our at Canada's 100th birthday in 1967. And um, while everyone was uh, celebrating the centennial um, uh, and, and Confederation 100 years earlier, Chief Dan George, who was a movie actor and also a chief in his community in, in, in on the West Coast, gave a speech called Lament for Confederation. And in that speech, he lamented the destruction of the environment, et cetera. And I invite you to read it because and, and think about it that, my God, that was written 50 years ago. It, it could have been written today, right? So one of the things he said in there was, he says, um, just give me the tools of your society. Just, just give me your, the access to education. And uh, we will make ourselves the most productive part of your society. And we are still looking for access. We're not looking for handouts. We're looking for access to the same opportunities as everyone else. And this is what Inspire is about. That's, you know, knitting that together is giving young Indigenous people access to the tools that everyone else has so that they can make, you know, their contribution. That's all it's about. Which, which ultimately makes a better Canada yeah. at the end of the day, right? Yeah. It, I mean, you know, I... Um, I was invited back to the University of Toronto, Scarborough, to speak at the, as a convocation speaker uh, a couple of years ago. And I remember looking out at the 300 graduates at Convocation Hall in Toronto, and um, wow, have things changed at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. It was almost exclusively um, white Canadians uh, in, in the crowd when I, when I went there. Now to look at it, you realize that we've got to give everybody access to this because this, we are, you know, you're looking out at, at faces from every corner of the world who have come to Toronto to live and come to Ontario and Canada to live. We've got to knit this all together folks, because uh, if we're, if we have, if we think we have the conceit to ignore um, black faces in our society or indigenous faces or, uh, South Asian faces, my God, we, we, we will never get ahead. You know, the resources are sitting right in front of us. We just have to give people equal access to opportunity. That's right. That's right. And an, an efficient, an efficient citizen base is an efficient country and giving people access to be efficient and productive should be our number one goal. Um, and, and, and I love that that's ultimately inspires vision. And there you have it, my conversation with Dr. Mike DeGagne. For more information on Inspire and the wonderful work they do, please visit www.inspire.ca. That's I-N-D-S-P-I-R-E dot C-A. This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew, and I am your host, Evan Sequera. If you like this episode and want to support the Capitalize for Kids podcast, please subscribe to our channel, share the episode, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming episodes. If you'd like to learn more about Capitalize for Kids and the work we do in supporting children's mental health, please visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org.